Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Just Crack an Egg. Has your relationship with breakfast felt strained lately? It's just too much work for a weekday, right? Well, it's time to head over to the egg aisle and pick up Just Crack an Egg. It's a hot, fluffy scramble that's ready in less than two minutes. Just add fresh egg over the chopped veggies, shredded cheese, hearty meat, and potatoes, then stir microwave and reignite your love of breakfast. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line, he's just been assigned to the Home Secretary. It's Andy Greenwald! Woo! How you doing? I heard you. Your vocal cords are you're suffering from all this podcasting you're doing. I think it's just like I'm getting to that point in my life where all, all of my living's catching up with me. Wow, it is true. It is true. The moneymaker's getting affected. I'm so sorry, it's buddy. It's okay, man. It's great to hear from you. It's Monday. Andy, we today are going to talk about the first episode, and I know that a lot of people, they love to binge shows, and they've probably already done this thing, and they've at least gotten halfway through it, if not. But we're going to talk about the first episode of Bodyguard, and we'll continue probably to talk about it throughout the next week or two. Uh, the new show on Netflix starring Richard Madden, who you may remember from Rob's, as Rob Stark from Game of Thrones. Really interesting show out of England. Probably the most popular show, English show in a long time. I checked this, Chris. It is the most, it has just pure viewers the most number of viewers of any British television show in 10 years. That's wild. What was the, what was the next one? Uh, I don't know. Do you want to know what the number is? Is it like it's something like Hollyoaks Christmas special? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was lunch with the vicar. Yeah. East it was the Christmas episode. Going down the, the off license episode. 200,000 people watched The Bodyguard. I think that's most of England. I, my numbers are slightly off. I think no, it was, it was over, like, over like almost 11 million people watched this show. Yeah, it was a lot of people watched this. So we're going to talk a little bit about Bodyguard. Um, did you make an off-license joke? This is great. I did. This is great I'm, I'm, I'm going to go deep today. Because I knew you've been in the bunker, quite literally, editing yeah. Briar Patch for the last couple of weeks. So I know that you're kind of behind on some news. So I thought I would just throw out some of the more, you know, it's been a pretty dark time, but I thought I would throw out some some relatively interesting entertainment business news for you to react to? I just want to say I, I appreciate that. Uh, I also appreciate you and the rest of the squad holding me down these last couple of weeks. I've been in and out. Um, Chris is absolutely right. I have not consumed any media, I think, for two weeks, which makes me an <laughs> ideal co-host for a twice-weekly pop-cultural podcast. But over the weekend, I did say that I probably had about 60 minutes free. Yeah. What should I do with it? And Chris, with the strength of the three lions behind him, recommended Bodyguard. So I appreciate that. But I am I am always ready to just just pipe off on some system of opinions about things that well, I'm not There was a fully, point last night where you and I were texting back and forth about the 1998 Phillies. And I was like, oh, no, I wonder if this is going to be like why he didn't watch Bodyguard. <laughs> it's because he was <laughs> looking I, up Greg Jeffrey's splits <laughs> from listen, June of 98. I was, a believer in, I was a believer in Mike Lieberthal since the day he was drafted. <laughs> I was a big Glanville guy, too. We were talking about Doug Glanville. This is probably the least interesting podcast ever recorded. Let's get into some Star Wars talk. Um, There's a couple of things I want to talk to you about. One was something that went, I I thought, largely unremarked upon last week, which was that Disney shut down pre-production, or at least is officially shut down. I don't even know if they got into pre-pro on uh, James Mangold's Boba Fett movie, which, you know, is further suggests that that kind of, that storyline, the Bounty Hunter storyline, will probably be a part of John Favreau's live-action Disney over the you know, streaming service television show, The Mandalorian. And 
I thought it was interesting more because you and I have been watching the kind of tea leaves of the Star Wars cinematic universe for a couple of years now. And it does seem like even if just in the current moment, they are ramping down production on these anthology stories. Without question, and with good reason. I mean, I don't know if we ever revisited this after we mostly panned Solo this summer, but, you know, all these numbers are always fudged and they're always loose, but there's a general estimate that Solo cost Disney, it was, a, it was a 50 to $80 million loss. That is, you know, close to one-third of what they spent on that movie, by the way. They spent close to $300 million I thought million you were going to say that that's movie. close to one-third of their Sweet Greens budget for a week. No, but, but, but that's, that's true, too. I mean, the scale at which all these things are operating is so insane. You know, when we were railing on Solo, it was like, just do the Kessel Run, man. You know, like, you do the small version of the big movie, and then you could potentially make the money back and actually make something good. They spent $300 million on it. So... Their whole planning, I think, was called into question, and correctly, they started shutting down these ancillary movies because I don't. There's, there's really no evidence that people wanted them, right? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I think also, I, I think that there was some a hope that the anthology movies would be a little bit of a playground for directors to show their different visions of the Star Wars world. And initially, I think when the script had come in for Solo, it was very much going to be this space western. You know, and it was going to be the great train robbery in space, and they had some elements of that for sure. And I think Ron Howard probably came back and imbued a little bit more of that original vision from the Kasdans in the final version of Solo. But it went through this Lord and Miller, let's try different versions of this on every take vision for the, sh- for the movie. And the, the Frankenstein Solo wound up disappointing a lot more people than it impressed. I think that the idea that they can get away with letting people play in this sandbox is over, right? Like, John Favreau is the, is the ultimate studio hand, and in a good way. He knows how to make entertaining fair, but you're not going to let James Mangold go all Logan on Boba Fett. You're not going to let Gareth Edwards do, you know, Saving Private Ryan or Zero Dark Thirty in space with Rogue One. They're going to recut these things. They're going to bring different directors in. They're going to have five, six versions of the screenplay, and that's what it is. Yeah, I think you're right to say that they're not going to let Gareth Edwards do it, because as we've discussed many times when talking about Rogue One, they didn't. And at a certain point, the, the conventional wisdom that every director wants to get his hands on the Star Wars action figure, and notice I said his hands because that seems to be the only type of director they're interested in servicing, at a certain point, that no longer really seems true, right? Because it, it just, it seems like, uh, I'm sorry, it, I, I, I know I'm quoting a recently deceased octopus general, but it seems like a trap. These are not <laughs> movies to play with. These are movies, these, this is a whole franchise to be treated with, with kid gloves and with extreme, you know, it, it feels extremely fragile all of a sudden, quite honestly. And you can see that in the conservative moves they've made since opening up the shop for business, including returning to J.J. Abrams after what I think was a successful outing with Ryan Johnson, but, you know, clearly was, uh, the, the, I, I don't even know, I don't want to say problematic, but they they don't appear inclined to let people chase their muse anymore with this stuff, as, you know, which, frankly... Maybe they shouldn't have. You know, I, I don't know. I, I've We've argued about this. We've talked about this. We've been excited about it. We've been disappointed by it. Ultimately, these are corporate decisions. And if you put on the, the corporate cap, I don't know what that cap looks like, some sort of bowler hat perhaps, then they should never have let people play with their most valuable asset, right? They should have just delivered what they think people want in safe increments. And that appears to be what they're reverting to do. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kathleen Kennedy, who is the one making these decisions, just re-upped um, to continue in her position for the next few years. So 
she will have a chance to course correct if that's really what this this is. Yeah, and I think that they must have have come up with some sort of multi-year plan for the the franchise in general if that that was the case, which I you know, they have been a little less forthcoming about even the bare bones of where things are going uh, than the Marvel universe was. And in fact, I think Marvel actually did a very good job of salting the pot a little bit to be like, yeah, you know, and then in 2020, this is going to happen. Whereas Star Wars has been a little bit more like, we're going to see where this goes. The, the people who are in Solo signed up for three movies. They're probably not going to make them unless there's a really, really, really intriguing take on where to go with it next. Whereas, you know, the Marvel universe has been plotted out for the next probably five to nine years, right? I mean, that's the assumption. And, and, and perhaps even more importantly, that's the perception. Right. I think Kevin Feige appears to be completely bulletproof in the way that he makes his he and his team makes movies. They really haven't taken a hit yet, you mm-hmm. know, so I mean, because they've all been hits and that perception matters more than anything else because it keeps people signing up for these things. It keeps the media machine running and the cover stories and even people like us using them as the positive example. Who knows what's really going on behind the scenes? You know, I, I remember hearing about um, elements of the development of a DC movie, you know, and this is par for the course, I think, with these big pictures these days where you know, they have screenwriting teams competing to write better versions of each act of the movie. I mean, it's it's almost antithetical to what we think of as a creative enterprise. And I'm sure Marvel does the same thing on some level. But if it works, then it works. And, the only people, and people only comment on the success. So the other half of this story is The Mandalorian, the Jon Favreau television show, which has like an incredible lineup of directors, including Taika Waititi and uh, Deborah Chow, who did a really excellent episode of Better Call Saul this season. A couple, maybe. I think she may have directed more more than one. Um, And this kind of... Disney's also now thinking about things in terms of how are they going to draw attention to this over-the-top app, which, I mean, they're not going to have to work too hard at it because they'll have the Disney library inside of it. Um, You know, Fantasy and I talked a little bit on Friday about the closing of Filmstruck and more largely the shifting sands of media libraries and where they're being placed and how people are going to put walls around some of this stuff to say, okay, you know, we're not just going to like license this stuff out unless it's like a huge money driver for us. Instead, we're going to build our own services. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm kind of curious though, because there was another story that came up, which was a kind of one of those like gotcha moments where Steve McQueen was talking about Widows, uh, his new film that's coming out shortly. And he was just kind of like, I'm not going to do TV because in TV, I just feel like there's too much of it. It's too hard to make kind of an inroad there. You don't get to really make the thing you want to make. And then, you know, he was even talking about it as a viewer. He's like, I don't even know how people keep up with it because you're being told, oh, you got to check out Ozark and you watch Ozark and it's just bad Breaking Bad. He said, when you get Breaking Bad, it's amazing. But then you get Ozark, which is a ripoff of that. It's unfortunate right now. There's so much money and so little ideas. The problem is, is when you have no money, you've got to think. I guess the larger question I wanted to ask you about was this this interesting interplay between the quote-unquote television industry and the quote-unquote movie industry. Right. Some of the dissolving borders between the two, but also this kind of, if you're kicking, if if we thought, oh, they're going to kick all the mid-tier good ideas, adult dramas, they're going to get kicked to TV. And then one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is I was kind of like, man, you know, I have a very efficient kind of top 10 list running right now for TV. And then there's a really big drop off when it comes to anything that wasn't good. You know, there there was, I think that there was like good TV this year, 
But the drop-off is pretty significant, and the drop-off, a lot of the shows have the same problems, which is that I don't know if the idea was fully cooked, and I certainly don't know if it was cooked specifically for a restaurant that serves television. It just started getting me thinking about some of these situations, some of these, the, the environment we're in right now, where we have identified television as like, well, this is where everybody can play, and this is where all the interesting stories live. And then we've identified movies as, well, this is where franchise IP happens. But in fact, those two things are kind of collapsing now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that that's the that you just picked up the thread that we were playing with when we were talking about the big push into genre fantasy that's right. stuff on television. That's right. A couple of weeks ago, we did that fantasy recap thing. Yeah. And, and all the big investments that Amazon is making and Netflix is making into these enormous, enormous, some quite old franchises. Part of that is thinking that when you speak about movie franchises and IP factories, we've constantly said that the reason the Marvel movies are successful is because in many ways they're aping television, right? In terms of the continuing storyline and the way characters come in and come out and how everything is deeply, deeply serialized. Um, I I don't know (laughs) anymore, you know, and I say this from the depths of the editing bay where I'm trying to make something that I hope people will watch, but it's very, honestly, it's, it's very confusing out there right now. I think that. Is that why you keep trying to put Boba Fett in your show? Well, here's the beauty of VizFX. I could. (laughs) (laughs) At relatively little cost, except for the legal bills (laughs) once it has actually aired. Um, I'm curious, before I say any more, what specifically you're talking about when you say, if you're looking down your top 10 list, and I don't want to step on your top 10 list because we do have our annual top 10 list sharing party festival podcast episode happening with the usual cranky guest. Uh, that's all scheduled. It's going to happen. So I don't want to step on that. But I'm curious specifically what you mean when you get into the 7, 8, 9, 10 range of your list. What ingredients that are TV to you just aren't on the menu? There's just, I think that I've been thinking a little bit about some of the, some of the Netflix shows and some of the conversations around Netflix movies and just the, the sheer volume of the stuff that's happening right now. And I, I, it's not that I think that there's anything particularly wrong with any one in particular show as much as you wonder whether or not movies being highly selective and only making things that they think have viability for either a lot of awards or a lot of money, if not both. And TV kind of being like, give us everything you got. And you get something like Romanoffs, which has some intellectually stimulating passages thrown into what seems like, frankly, like a wild, wild ego trip with no checks. And I'm just like... Could this show have been like much more helped if it just had like commercial breaks, you know, and it got chopped up into more episodes or something happened here that was almost more like, let's have some checks and balances put in here. And then on the same time, I just think that the more you read about Apple and the more you read about some of the other services that are coming and how they're going to be drawing so much from their own libraries, I just wonder whether or not this idea of movies good or movies are where like superheroes are. TV is where all the real stuff happens, is going to change. Well, look, I think you made a good example of the Romanoffs, a show I hope neither of us have watched, but we're going to continue to talk about <laughs> with complete, complete authority. In fact, I'm not even sure the show exists. I, I have, I have watched two episodes of it. Ah, damn, you're, so, you're always ahead of me. I know. Um, that is, this is movies. The thing about movies, and believe me, everyone listening knows I'm the number one authority on the topic. Um, 
there was a path, right, where, you know, certainly in the 60s and 70s, as the auteur idea of American cinema came into full flower, is that you would come up with a scrappy, hungry kind of movie that made your name, and then they wouldn't be able to say no to you, and you would make your big movie. And yeah. sometimes that movie turned out to be Heaven's Gate, and then you didn't get to make another movie, right? <laughs> but it was almost the cost of doing business, is that the studios would, you know, be on you, but you know, you'd either be scrapping outside the system, then you'd come into the system. But basically, if you prove something once, they couldn't stop you the second time, and then they would make you pay for it after that. And honestly, like, the Romanovs, it, it, it's not just the Romanovs itself, it's where Matthew Weiner was in his career coming off of Mad Men, and then where the industry was in terms of these enormous companies who have limitless cash wanting to lay down markers in terms of public perception and in terms of the, not just public perception, but the industry saying, we're going to reward this great talent and we're not just going to reward it. We're going to take them off the board and let them do what they want to do. And now I would say they're paying the price for it, but A, I have not seen the television show, so do not trust me on it. But (laughs) B, there's no such thing as a price, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much money Amazon spent on it or how much it loses or wins because there's no accounting for it, right? So that's, in that sense, I think TV has become has become movies, but it's also, in, it, it also feels absurdly inflated. Like in the 80s when everyone was all the, you know, everyone's on steroids or the movies were jacked up and big and very aggressive. And then there was that whole thing with, when uh, um, Sony bought Columbia Pictures, right? And so the, there was all this foreign movie money just flooding the marketplace. Um that's kind of what it reminds me of when I see the press release. And again, Apple, their television department, just Italian chef's kiss, the best press releases. Friggin' Steve Carell is in that morning show with Jennifer exactly. Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. We have this show, supposedly, that's going to run two seasons, <laughs> supposedly, about a book, except it's not really about the book, because the book was a nonfiction book about NBC during the last dramatic kerfuffle involving the Today Show. So it's not really that. It's just sort of inspired by that world. It's already switched creator showrunners once despite not having put anything on camera. Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston are committed to two seasons where they're each being paid a million dollars each. And then for the for the third lead, why not get Steve Carell, right? So it's just it's just <laughs> funny money in press releases. I don't know. You know, we, we constantly on this podcast marvel and wonder at this stuff. I, it honestly has no effect on the consumer uh, except when they see it and think it's good or not. Or... It has an effect on the consumer if, you know, that the financial disparity between an Apple who can just throw all of the money at these people um, and not just in front of the camera, but potentially behind the camera and, you know, down the line, too, if that has a, a negative effect on lower budgeted shows or lower budgeted networks that people love. I, I, ha- I have no idea. As far as I can tell, people just watch the Chicago shows, you know, I mean, I, on NBC. I, I, it really increasingly feels like we're just talking about two completely separate realities. Yeah, I guess you're right. You know, we talk a lot about intellectual property on this show. In fact, you know, it's basically like a national pastime for us. But for the most part, what we're referring to when we talk about that is people making television and movies out of previously made television and movies, board games, video games, uh, obviously novels, obviously comic books, a huge, huge resource. Nobody ever makes movies or TV shows about albums. And that's why I think I was so surprised and interested to see that Luca Guadagnino was talking about making his next movie to base it off of Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. This sounds incredible because he's a great director. It sounds like he wants Richard Legravenes, who wrote Behind the Candelabra and The Fisher King, to write the screenplay. It's obviously an incredibly tormented, rich, interesting, and involving album uh, about the 
dissolving of a romantic relationship. And it could be just, you know, it could be a dynamite movie. But I was wondering whether or not albums are the new comic books, man. Could we, could we think of some albums that you would want to see made into movies? Well, first of all, my first reaction to this is rolling my eyes very hard. Because Cause you're like, why not make John Wesley Harding into a movie? <laughs> but why is, why is it always Dylan? I mean, the last one that, you know, there was the I'm Not There movie, right? The Todd Haynes yeah, movie I'm not talking about actors played Dylan. But I'm not talking about biographical films. I'm talking about, like, basing it specifically off of an but, album. But what does that mean? Like, they're going to act out the lyrics? Or this is inspired by what Luca thinks the album You just sound like about. a dude who's mad that he can't put Boba Fett in his television show, honestly. Listen, I just <laughs> told you that I could. And now I feel like I will. But please... Explain this to me. What about just, Bo- I, I have some thoughts. Boba Fett stars in the Blood on the Tracks movie. How about that? Uh, yeah, getting warmer. <laughs> is, uh, is is there a part for Django Fett, or is that in the expanded universe? That's is that after the credits. That's the expanded Dylan universe. That's when Jake Dylan shows up, and the Wallflowers are actually in the same universe. Chris, just explain to me what you mean by a movie inspired by an album. Okay, so clearly you could set it during the time of the, the album itself. You're drawing from it thematically. You can have all sorts of Easter eggs for the lyrics. You could have the album itself be the soundtrack. I'm going to let Luca and Richard LeGravenez decide all this stuff. I'm just saying that there is, if you say, hey, here's a movie, it's called Sgt. Pepper's, people will probably be like, what's that movie about? You know what I mean? Like, they'll be like, they'll be interested in it. The whole point of intellectual property... It starred the Bee Gees, and it was terrible. I'm not, yeah, I know. I'm saying that we're, we're trying to come up with, like, there's a movie about a guy named Sergeant Pepper, and he's, he's like a sad sergeant, and he's like, when I'm 64, he's singing about that stuff. You're, you're, by the way, you're, you're just killing the Hollywood game today. <laughs> uh, all right, I'm only being difficult for, for one reason, which is, the literal translation of albums and lyrics strikes me as a very, very, very bad idea. You know, I think that even in the case of so-called like rock operas or, or, or you know, concept albums, the album is still the thing. And maybe it used to be with videos as well. Like My Chemical Romance had a great album called The Black Parade. And I'm very happy that Gerard Way, who, you know, friend of the podcast, great creator in a number of mediums, He's, you know, now one of his, he writes comic books. One of the comic books is coming to Netflix um, next year, The Umbrella Academy. I'm very happy that he kept that idea as a musical idea just through videos, because I think it it wouldn't withstand the narrative scrutiny that we would put other types of stories through, and it's better for it. But, but if you are talking about a, a move towards making movies or TV shows based on this the the sense reaction yes that we have use your imagination i'm not talking about doing rock operas i'm talking about making a late 60s la movie called on the beach that would be dope okay now i'm ready he's coming over the mountains let's make a movie based on shootouts from it was written by nas come on now i'm ready to have this conversation with you because i think that all writers of any type of medium have in their heads generally the sound of the thing they're yes. doing often before they do the or thing. the vibe I mean, everything from this is based on a steely dan album or everything is based off of yeah, like a the, phil specter album or something yeah i i knew what briar patch sounded like before a year or two before we produced it and then you know we we made it and it doesn't sound like that anymore because it's a different thing but you to get to the place to understand how you translate the emotion the song's the thing no question so i have i, I wrote down some thoughts for you okay 
because I prepare for podcasts. That's all I wanted. That's all I wanted. So here, here are four records that I would like to be taken, you know, I'd like to see them adapted in some form. For me, the White Whale has always been Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac's rumors. Okay, what's the vibe? Because so we know it's it's he, there's there's a lot of heartbreak and cocaine and going of stops. one's own you know way. What? Yeah, I'm gonna stop you there. <laughs> I don't really understand what else you would need <laughs> in a movie. Uh, speaking of heartbreak and cocaine, I have two more albums <laughs> what that surprise. I would like to be turned into. <laughs> Yeah, is this is is this providing any insight into what the editing process is like going into week three? <laughs> Chris, do you remember a record from a decade ago called "The Fix" by Scarface? Yeah, I do. Yeah, so I was listening to that record a lot again recently, and it's so good. But it is, and I used to hate this adjective when I was a music critic. But at this point, and in this conversation, it seems appropriate. It's super cinematic, and the character that he plays. And I feel like, look, Scarface is like, was he 60? How old is this dude now? <laughs> I think that he embraces the fact that he's playing a character. Yeah, that's his Unforgiven. That's his Unforgiven. Exactly. Exactly. You feel me. Even when he come, even when the old gunslinger goes up to New York to record with the, to record with the Young Bucks, right? To record with, with Kanye and Beanie Mac and, well, Jay-Z wasn't young, but you know what I'm saying. That album. Okay. Now, the, that's the South version of it, the Southern version of it, Houston, Texas version. What about, speaking of Friends of the Pod, what about Powder Burns by the Twilight Singers? Well, then, of course, if you're going to do a, a, a Greg Dooley album, Black Love was sort of envisioned as a movie. Yeah. Yeah, and I think he may have written the screenplay about that. I think he talked about that when he came on the pod, but Black Love has that arc of a guy who's like, basically like, this is my last night on the streets, on the edge of society, like, gun in hand, fur coat it's it's very like this combination of like black exploitation and punk rock and you know subway trains rattling by if you listen to it it is told as a movie i i also think that there is something that uh filmmakers and creative people are always chasing there especially now especially because the world is apparently falling apart um a certain kind of like post-tech dystopia that is a default setting for a lot of filmmakers, a lot of big-budget filmmakers, and a lot of um, big-budget genre storytelling. And yet, when it's put into practice, somehow, maybe with the exception of, like, Strange Days, the Catherine Bigelow movie, it and, and maybe a little bit of last, of what oh, was this year's Blade Runner sequel, Yeah, it kind of always ends up feeling like the rave scene in the second Matrix movie. So... I wish people would revisit a favorite album of ours just purely for the sonic experience of it and what it might say about storytelling, which is Primal Scream's 2000 album, Exterminator. Jesus. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's right. It's kind of like, that has like kind of a Mad Max meets the Stooges feel. It, exactly. It, it it sounds like the party that you're forced to throw at the end of the world and that pretty much, and it, feel, it felt prescient then and it feels weirdly appropriate now. Yeah, so I think my two would be On the Beach by Neil Young, make it like a late 60s, early 70s kind of Manson turnover into the to the darkness of the 70s. Although that is by and large what I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the next Quentin Tarantino movie is going to be about. Or specifically this one song off of it was written, but I think the storytelling on it was written the second Nas album is you know really uniquely suited for a screenplay. And if I was really, really, really trying to just go full, 
the raid with it, I would say only built for Cuban links. Ooh. Yeah. And only only built for Cuban links also has kind of like a color palette already. And you know, that cover has got that red and yellow feel, that spectrum right there, you know? That's the purple tape. I mean it's well it's, it's the purple it tape, but the cover of the album is red and yellow. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh, okay, great. Look, Chris. I remember the, the color of the CDs that I used to buy. I remember. <laughs> I feel like we've got a couple good ideas there. All right. If you guys have ideas, hit us up at the Watch Pod on Twitter. Maybe we'll talk about them on Thursday. Uh, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back to talk about Bodyguard. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection. Explore the vast number of things you can do with your secure smart home, like doorman service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids, or turndown service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat, or even worry-free getaway service, which I love, which lets you arm your system, lock up, and set lighting schedules before you go on vacation, all controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. And don't worry about installing and configuring your system. ADT will D-I-F-Y do it for you. Just visit ADT.com slash smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Microsoft Surface. Let's talk about something super exciting, like the newest member of the Microsoft Surface family, the Surface Pro 6. Now faster and more powerful than ever before, so you can get even more done, whether it's from your office, at the airport, or on your couch. Take the keyboard off and draw on it easily, or snap it back on and type on it like a laptop. With up to 13 and a half hours of battery life and the new 8th gen Intel Core processor, you can work how you want to, for as long as you want to, wherever work takes you. All right, Andy, The Bodyguard, or Bodyguard as it is known, it was a very, very popular English show starring Richard Madden and Keely Hawes. Netflix put it up last Wednesday. I talked a little bit, actually, with Matthew McFadden about this on Friday's episode. Matthew McFadden, obviously Tom from Succession, Henry Wilcox from Howard's End, a veteran actor in England and in Hollywood. And we talked a little bit about how the English television industry and, and Hollywood are basically the same now. That there is really no lag between these things getting released. Little Drummer Girl came out last night in England. The first episode, it'll be up on, I think, Sundance in a couple of weeks. Sundance or AMC. Uh, in like two weeks. So these things are no longer like in a year or two, you might get to see this cool British show. I mean, we are doing co-productions. We are doing global releases now. So something like Bodyguard, which is a sensation in England hits America pretty soon after the fact. I want to get your initial impressions off this first episode because I think because of its success, you can't help but watch it and be like, why was this so successful? Which is a different way to sort of watch a show, I think. Well, I, I actually have a different take on it. I watched it. I watched the first episode um, because I'm old and old-fashioned, I guess, not the whole thing. And I immediately knew why it was, success why it was successful. I mean, it actually connects quite well to the conversation we were having um, before the break about the mixed, yes. mixed DNA Absolutely, of movies and TV and, and what's what. This is TV. Yeah. This is pure TV. This is but, slightly classier 24 with accents. And of course it's successful, you know, and it had that kind of delicious um, manipulation that if you are willing to give into 
you are probably going to be rewarded if you're in the hands of people who know what they're doing. And I say that with respect, but that's the type of, but that's the type of uh, level of entertainment that people like Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy, people who not coincidentally received, you know, $100, $300 million deals with Netflix, that's what they do best. And for me, and for, I think for a lot of viewers who are dis, not just, it's not discerning, but limited in their time and tend to only invest in the highest quality whatever, or, or what we perceive to be the highest quality whatever, um, the real question in watching a show like Bodyguard is, are you going to submit or not? See, and if you do, you know, I think you'll probably have a better time with it. Yeah, I think that it's interesting that you brought that up because Bodyguard is what I was thinking about when I was asking an admittedly convoluted question about the crumbling boundaries between TV and movies because I thought Bodyguard had some of the best elements of both. And to open up your series with, a, I think, a 25-minute set piece, essentially, which is the suicide bombing situation on the train, is a movie gesture. Like, that doesn't happen usually in television shows. Usually in a TV show, that would be five minutes, and then it would get into his home life, and then it would get into his office life, and, you know, you would get through the 42 minutes or whatever. This dedicates itself. It almost is working from it. This this is going to be a six-episode season. Immediately uses the, the landscape in a different way than I think most television shows would. I don't think you would open up with something like that, but you learn a lot about the character in that situation still. I mean, it's got that economy that television economy of exposition that I think is useful where you find out what he does, you find out where he's been, you find out how he feels about where he's been, and you find out about the state of the world right there. Also, and this is a, a network note that I think is probably a smart one for television, you you find out if you can trust him or not. Sure. You know, you, yeah. you find out if he's a hero or not. And despite the episode's faint in the other direction at the end of the hour, the first 10 minutes have already told us what we need to know about this character. Yes, and I think the one thing that I would say, and I guess I do have some, I I, I do think I have some Anglophilia, residual Anglophilia from being raised by a, a an English man, but like I think an English man who was your father. By he the was way. my father. Was not, it wasn't was like a Dickensian Fagan. thing where like I was raised in a <laughs> like by, by a chimney sweep. No, I think I have like just a kind of benefit of the doubt that I give a lot of English TV, but I would say that this has way better. This is way better than it has any business being. The level of performance and the level of writing for what is essentially, like you said, 24, it's like a 24 style show and it is even a little bit more procedural than 24 is. I mean, I think it's a little bit more straightforward, at least formally, because 24 at least had the frantic kind of, is the world going to end every minute feeling to it and the compressed time. This just feels like a bunch of people who are almost overqualified to be... I mean, Keely Hawes is just an incredible actress. She doesn't need to play the home secretary. But, like, even in these moments where it's, like, trading the trading shirts moment or her offering him the wine, that scene in her kitchen, the, there are these little human moments where really great actors are able to imbue not pedestrian moments, but genre moments with actual humanity. I guess so, and I and I don't disagree with you. I was impressed by the production, but I was also a little bit flattened by it. It hmm. is an incredibly well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. surfacey yeah. show, which again, there's nothing wrong with it. So is Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy does Grey's Anatomy really, really well. Um, you know, everyone is a little too good looking. Everyone's hair is a little too perfect. When she opened the, her glossy refrigerator in that wine scene you're mentioning, there were like 
four cherry red tomatoes just perched on the edge of the of the shelf. You know, like that's not a real person's refrigerator. And these are the levels of detail that I'm looking at now because now that I've lived through set decoration and stuff, I know that someone was thinking about that choice. Or they and you weren't. go home and all you see are these grotesque tomatoes that have just been <laughs> unused by you. Everything is. Because I live here now, yeah. everything in my actual home is in decay. It's just like um, half a this, bag of goldfish and a Fig Newton. This entire podcast is a cry for help. Um, <laughs> so it's just a question of which you prioritize, right? Like, are we championing little moments of humanity in a sea of gloss or vice versa? I, I, I think that for me, I... I thought that the opening was that level of delicious manipulation, you know, that even though you you know that your lead character isn't going to be exploded in the first 10 minutes of this, the show, it was well-directed, mm-hmm. it was well-paced, it had enough uh, misdirects to make it thrilling. It's really well-made filmmaking. But I got to say, the young the young wolf, the young king in the north, feels <laughs> seems a little bit overwhelmed here. Um, I think that that's part of the plan, though. Maybe. I am... You know, I, I think he's very good at flexing his Andy, bones, I just want to have way, a chat. I just want to have a chat, Andy. You, can, I, can I call you and have a chat? He's, he, all he wants is to have a chat. It seems quite reasonable. You know, I, I have to say, he's not asking for too much. It also seems like she's like, you've been drinking. And it seems like he has two bottles of cider in yes, front of him. And if a guy has done time, like he's served in Afghanistan, can he not like hang with more than two bottles of Magners? Also, again, please feel free, as a Dickensian street urchin, born and raised, maybe you have a better perspective on this, but in my experience in the UK, like two small bottles of export lager, that is not drinking in the UK. No, that's what I'm saying, but he seems like he's just like, Mickey, I've been having a bit of a taste, I'm on the last lad. He's hammered. He's a bit of a lightweight, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess so. I mean, he, I don't think, yeah, he's not, I don't know if he's the biggest chap, you know? I think that might be part of it. But look, uh, the other thing that kind of took me out of this show was the fact that it's called Bodyguard. Now, you mm-hmm. can take away the participle, but if you call something Bodyguard, they're going to be boning, right? Like, that's what it's about. Am I wrong? Like, I only watched the first episode. So when it suddenly was like, he might kill her, I was like, he's not going to kill her. They're going to fall in love. No, they're not. <laughs> I mean, look, Kaya's looking at me because Kaya's watched most of this episode. I, I, there's obviously, I think this is a much twistier show than maybe we're reading it as initially. I did not get the impression that this was a, okay, a two lovers from the opposite side. She's a hawkish government minister and he's right, a peace-loving ex-soldier. Right, record scratch, I feel good, comes in. <laughs> You'll never believe what happens next. I'm saying, you call something the bodyguard, I will always love you starts playing in a loop in my brain, right? You've been I, so like, corrupted by IP, man. There, There is a movie coming out from by Alex Ross Perry, very interesting filmmaker who I think we're both fans of, starring Elizabeth Moss. And it's about a destructive young singer, songwriter in a band, played by mm-hmm. Elizabeth Moss. And it's called Her Smell. Mm-hmm. If he had called it a Star is Born for the UK release, people would be confused, right? Like I think if you did that two thing. months after a Star is Born is released, yes, but you can still use the word bodyguard. A lot of people have had their bodies guarded uh, since Whitney Houston. Ask Kaya if she's, if, is she familiar with the Kevin Costner, Whitney Houston classic film, The Bodyguard? No. There you go. What? Yeah. 
What is this world even? What are you talking about? Kaya's just, she's like not, not beholden to the legacy of Kevin Costner. Ask Kaya what her, who her three favorite You Dickensian can ask Kaya, she's listening are. to the podcast. Why do I have to relay this message? Go ahead. Honestly, after seven years of this, I didn't know our producers listened to us. Like and I wouldn't blame them if they didn't. I, I always assume they're just listening to How Did This Get Made and having a What's great What's your time. question? You answered it. She's oh, never okay. seen the, the film The Bodyguard. But I thought you had a second one. It was about Dickensian street urchins. We can <laughs> okay. All right. We can take that one offline. All right. So, Andy, I think I am a little bit more fired up about this show than you are uh, because it's Netflix and because people can't help themselves. I don't think they need our in or out on this. Like, they're going to either keep going or they're not. And because it's six episodes, man, I think that people are really going to, they are going to really inhale this one. Are you going to keep watching? Well, at the beginning of this podcast, you told people we would be finishing the series. So the answer I'll to be that finishing is, the series. I yes. think you're only making cameo appearances at this point anyway. So I can <laughs> wow. just do a Am solo I... show where I'm like, it's me. And then I'm interviewing my own impression of Richard Madden for 45 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> wow. Wow. You really, I think you just doubled our subscriber base. Um, <laughs> am I being written out of this? No, Look, come on. I'm just I, um, yeah, I'll watch it because I, you know what I believe in and, and I, I believe in I believe in television phenomenons. Like, I love that it's popular. I love that there's still a version of a story that is not necessarily original, but is told in a way that grabbed people's attention, you know, that has just enough, um, just enough seasoning of either current events or current thinking or challenging or complicated thinking to make it palatable and fresh. You know, that there, there's a nimbleness to this. And I, I know what you were saying um, when you were talking to, to Tom, which isn't his name, but I feel so salty. I couldn't Matthew be there I'm going to yeah. call him Tom. That there really is no difference between the TV industries anymore. And that's probably true. But you remember earlier this year, we were we were talking about the, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on it, the Carrie Mulligan show. Collateral. The, the, the Collateral that David yeah. Ayer wrote. Because of the length of the series, it's worth the time. You know, it, it, it really feels like Neither of these shows, neither Collateral uh, nor Bodyguard are particularly experimental, but they do feel alive with possibility of trying things because you're going to get in, you're going to get out, and maybe you'll be surprised. Maybe everyone involved will be surprised, let alone the audience. I guess that the thing feeling, that I was talking about with like, it seems it's got, it's better that it has any business being is that this show gives me feel, the same feeling I got when I first started watching The Fall or when I saw the first season of Broadchurch, which is like, this is pretty recognizable material rendered right. in a way that is just by like true professionals of what they're doing. So here's the, the, the follow-up question is what I, I guess I was going to say, why isn't anyone? And I, maybe the question is better phrased more positively. Like is someone, is someone at Netflix and Amazon paying attention to this? Because these types of shows seem much more um, sensible for them to be investing, not even hundred, you know, not even tens of millions of dollars in, uh, to make rather than very, very niche ego trips like the Romanoffs. Again, a show I have not watched. But you get what I'm saying? I mean, Netflix, yeah. I guess, has the best of yeah. both worlds because that's where you can see Collateral and The Fall and Bodyguard. But where is the mararketplace? And I'm sure there's a marketplace-based reason why this doesn't exist, but I'm I curious think the to problem is right now well, is why that isn't there an American version of this where there are American TV creators who say, instead of thank you, thank you for your generous offer of remaking you know, Fellowship of the Ring for $500 million. <laughs> Instead, I'll take $15 million and uh -huh. I'll make five episodes of a medical drama or of a 
cop show or whatever, and we'll see how it goes. So you're saying the problem with New Amsterdam is that there's too many episodes, but if it was just six episodes, it would be the greatest greatest show in the history of time. I, I'm not saying it would be, but the, I, the central idea of that show, um, from what I understand, seems to be what if the white supremacist from Black Klansman was ornery? <laughs> and, you know... That's a million dollar idea right there. No, the central premise, right, is that something like a guy takes over a hospital and is like, and he's like, let's revolutionize uh, healthcare from within. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're. I think. Okay, I haven't seen. That's not a bad idea. It's just an idea, and it's where you pivot the idea. So if you exact, I think, I honestly think so. That's a good example for it. Instead of making that an open ended twenty two episodes a year, going for the largest possible slice of the audience pie. You take that idea to Netflix or Hulu and you say, I'm going to make five episodes. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not only is it a lot more interesting, it seems more cost effective. And then you can extend it because there's no question there will be more bodyguards. Oh, yeah, right? for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, I this solved is all it. F- Chris, I solved it. I you solved got TV. It. We, we, we got all the way through a 45-minute pod and then we solved television. Um, Greenwald, I'll talk to you on Thursday. Am I right? Did you ever read Bleak House? Um, I was never like super into Dickens and can I tell you why? Yeah, I think this is the place for it. At a young age, when I found out that he was like paid by the word, I was like, this is bullshit. Aren't you glad no one ever found that out about us when we wrote for Spin? (laughs) But they didn't let us write more than 300 words. If I was getting that, that Dickens rate, I would have written a 400 page book about like the Everclear album, but I didn't, you know? In the early days, I think you did. And then our friend John Dolan was like, no, no, I only need 200 of these That's right. That's right. Okay, Andy, so we'll talk on Thursday. There's a lot of good stuff coming, and we might chat a little bit more about Bodyguard on Thursday, and we would, I would like to chat a little bit about Homecoming, which debuts this week, our buddy Sam Esmail's show. Uh, Chris, I appreciate that you've always been a quality over quantity guy. <laughs> I do. Bye, buddy. Do you want to say it in an Irish accent? Vicky! I just wanted to have a chat about the Baranskis. That's Irish. What am I doing? Goodbye, Mom. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye, Baranskis. Bye, buddy. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection. Features services like Doorman Service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids. Or Turndown Service, which is an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat. It's all controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. Just visit ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you.